I'm Brian Walsh, and from Impact Alpha, this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. This is the second episode in a special series produced by Impact Alpha in collaboration with the Midiar Network called Beyond Tradeoffs, Investing Across the Returns Continuum. Yeah, we like to say this is about playing impact chess, not checkers. I think sometimes people want a binary simplistic, there's a bright line, this counts, this doesn't, we do this, we don't do that, versus thinking, how do I meaningfully engage across all my assets to meet my range of goals? That's John Goldstein, Managing Director at Goldman Sachs Asset Management. John recently spoke with Impact Alpha editor David Bank about practical approaches for investors who want lower risks, higher returns, and positive impact. Let's jump right in. I'm here with John Goldstein, a managing director at Goldman Sachs, who helps lead the Goldman's uh, impact investing business. Um, with his colleague, Megan Starr, he has a, a, a essay in the Beyond Tradeoffs series. So I just want to kick off, John. I just want to ask you, what is Beyond Tradeoffs? So, you know, as we think about it, and first of all, thanks for having me. Really appreciate the, the opportunity and really appreciate the great uh, support from Omidyar to document a lot of these things in, in the pieces. If you haven't read them, go out and read them. Um, so for us, Beyond Tradeoffs is taking a practical investment-minded view to impact investing in ESG, environmental social governance investing, versus a philosophical view. Um, because I think often these concepts can get very binary, very abstract, and leave the world of investing and get into the realm almost of theology. And I think we found it's very hard for people to make progress on those kinds of questions. On the other hand, if you treat it as a practical investment-minded question, uh, it means you do a couple things. Number one, you need a thesis. You need an investment thesis. What are financial drivers? What are impact drivers? Where are they aligned? Where are they out of sync? You need an investment logic that explains where, why, and how this would work, and where, how, and why it wouldn't work. Second of all, you need to do the work, right? At the end of the day, investing is hard. It takes a lot of work resources, effort, and discipline, impact investing in ASG are no different. Third of all, uh, at the end of the day, you need to implement well. High quality execution matters here arguably more than in quote unquote conventional investing. And finally, four, you need to rinse, repeat. You need to reflect, iterate, and refine. We like to say impact investing is a process, not an act. So if this is a practical act, it's not about debating at a high level, and this is un the unfortunate fact of a podcast is people cannot see the hand gestures I'm making to illustrate that. Um, but you roll up your sleeves, you have a thoughtful investment approach, you do the work, you implement, and you pick your head up and you iterate over time. Furthermore, you do that across a portfolio. This is not a one and done process, it's not a checklist process, it's not just for stocks or bonds or privates. If this is a, something grounded with a real thesis, you look across the portfolio, you find logical entry points, you implement, you learn, you extend. So John, I've always admired your analytical mind. And now in the first two minutes of this podcast, we have the four point strategy and the one furthermore. And we, I think we have, we're, our work is done, but um, the, 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 we'll pick up on each one of those points. I just want to make sure everybody knows who you are. I've known you since your days at Imprint Capital, um, where you work on these kinds of issues. And then I think one of the signal events of a couple of years ago in, in terms of impact investing move into the mainstream was actually Goldman's acquisition of imprint. So now you're inside Goldman. Yeah. No, and I mean, I, I think it is. I, I occasionally do giggle at how far the field has come in the sense that shortly after the acquisition was announced, I was actually doing a panel uh, with Liesl Pritzker at the UN, and she reached over, sort of covered the mic and, and said, you know, I read the announcement. Had I read that 18 months ago, I would have assumed it was in the onion. Right. And, and I think you know, it, it's a sign of how far I think the field has come that now it's a matter of course. And you see large institutions entering this in a real way. I mean, to give you a little bit of a sense, 
you know, at Imprint Capital, we, you know, we had 15 people. We managed $550 million in assets. Now, within the investment management division at Goldman Sachs, we have more than 40 people full-time focused on this, plus all the other resources we tap, and we manage about $19 billion. Um, and I think when we look at it, we break it down into a couple of key things that we do when I think about what, what our job is. Uh, number one is to take this confusing, entrancing, mystifying landscape and make it approachable and accessible to clients around the world. What's different from Imprint Capital is, you know, in addition to the types of institutions we worked, you know, Imprint worked with 11 of the 25 largest U.S. foundations, set of family offices, family foundations. Now we work with sovereign wealth funds, the biggest insurers in the world, pension funds around the world. So have a lot of visibility and a lot of access to really help different types of institutions go through that process of taking a concept and figure out really what it means to them and how it implements and really looking across that portfolio to have that thesis, do the work to have a game plan, and to actually put this into action, to take that intention, interest, and put in action. That's sort of job one. Job two is to be a center of research and knowledge to actually go and learn more about these topics. This is a knowledge-driven approach, not a product-driven approach. So go develop that knowledge both on our own, but also Goldman Sachs has a lot of people learning a lot of things about a lot of topics. Bring that together to accomplish two things. Help Goldman's investors be better at doing what they do by incorporating environmental social governance into how we invest for all our clients. Right? That's not for clients who care about these factors. It's for clients who care about making money on a risk-adjusted basis. The world is changing, and a growing competence navigating that is increasingly important to do that well. Two, we have clients that want to lean a little forward into those themes. So I think in the piece we mentioned, the New York Common Retirement Fund you know, wanted to lean a little bit into the question of how to manage climate risk. So we create a low-carbon climate index uh, for them. We have clients with a range of those interests, so European uh, pension fund that wanted to have their private assets invest towards advancing the sustainable development goals, for example. Clients that have a variety of purposes and want to lean more deeply into this, so partner with those clients to, to lean a little deeper. The third thing, and this is really where Taylor, who co-founded Imprint with me, what he leads is go out and look at all those sectors and issues and investment managers that don't carry Goldman Sachs business cards, those specialists um, in the impact field, some people that don't self-identify as impact but are deep experts in fields like health, education, financial inclusion, renewable energy, resource efficiency, and allocate capital for them. So that's really what we do is help navigate all this terrain for clients. They could want to talk about any asset class. They could want to talk about governance to implementation, all points in between. Two, deepen the base of knowledge within Goldman Sachs so that we can both infuse core products with that and create more tailored products. And three, do the deep research to go and allocate to external managers, particularly in private impact. And that's where Taylor and really a lot of the legacy imprint team sits. Well, that's what I, where I was going to jump off from because I think the imprint business was more primarily private markets and the Goldman business has quite a lot of public markets and publicly listed equities. I was actually going to wave the red flag in front of you and say, oh, wasn't, weren't you doing deep impact at Imprint and now you're, you're in big old, big bad Goldman Sachs and this can't really be impact? You know, not surprisingly, yeah, this question uh, comes up a lot. And I think a couple key things I would say. I think, you know, number one, at Imprint scale, public markets investing was good for clients who wanted to align their portfolios and, and be in sync with either their views of where the world was going or their views of where they wanted the world to go. But there wasn't really a transmission mechanism through capital markets that frankly gave it more of a direct impact. At the scale of Goldman Sachs, you know, on the other hand, the transmission mechanism into public markets is a little bit more interesting. So back to the New York Common example, you know, at this point, you know, we have billions of dollars in this low carbon partnership that's paired with their shareholder engagement work and a push for broader disclosure of emissions. And they in turn use that to partner with other asset owners. 
So using a public markets vehicle, and it's not necessarily that the specific investments change the market, but that voice communicating to the market, asking for more data, more disclosure, you know, that starts to actually have a transmission mechanism that works its way in the capital markets. The same thing on the environmental social governance side, which is harnessing you know, the expertise we have with our corporate credit analysts, with our quant analysts and others to really add new data sets to their thinking that affects tens of billions of dollars. I think that's where some of the public markets work tends to be a little more interesting. And I think we're starting to see that in turn where corporate clients are starting to ask, how do I think about this? Investors are asking me more about this. How do I think about this in a real way? Not just in a labeling way, not just in a marketing way, but how do I actually engage on this in a real way? And I think at Goldman, I think I've had a chance actually to see where the discourse, the conversation can actually move practice at the corporate level with large publicly traded companies that are obviously a very large part of the economy forward as well. So I've gained, uh, and it's funny, Taylor and I, early in the days of imprint, you know, Taylor was always insistent we need to cover the full portfolio across asset classes, public equities were in scope. And I pushed back on that for years. And I, I, I went to Taylor about a year after the acquisition and I said, you can take a victory lap on this one that I'm now uh, converted. And I think there's always been great work around shareholder engagement that a whole host of institutions have done. And there's a long heritage of that and a lot of great individual organizations and associations. But I think to actually see using new data, new research, new types of conversations starting to push that forward as a constructive part of the toolkit. And I think our field spends a lot of time trying to debate a magical bright line of what counts as impact and what's where and what's there. And I think for us, it's really, there's a spectrum of ways you can engage with different asset classes. They have different attributes in terms of what is the impact thesis underlying them, how direct versus indirect it is. And they're different to say that a high quality, high engagement investment in a disruptive early stage enterprise where you're directly capitalizing innovation has the same impact as moving shares in a listed portfolio. Those are different. That's okay, right? The reality is if we're engaging in this as investors, we're looking across the portfolio and recognizing they're different and being honest about that. But debating what the one true ring in all this is tends to get in the way of actually rolling up your sleeves and getting to work. And so for public markets, we've gotten a deeper appreciation of how to do that thoughtfully. The McKnight Foundation has done a great job of this also with how they engage as a consumer of financial services. You know, and I think they've written extensively on their website, it's worth reading if you haven't checked it out, is how just by talking differently to your asset managers, you build their capacity, you get them to engage in issues differently. You know, we like to say this is about playing impact chess, not checkers. I think sometimes people want a binary simplistic, there's a bright line, this counts, this doesn't, we do this, we don't do that. Versus thinking, how do I meaningfully engage across all my assets to meet my range of goals? Okay, well, in the public markets, a lot of this discussion gets telescoped down into you know, the inevitable three-letter acronym ESG, Environmental Social Governance. And I think what you're saying is that there is a role for particularly large public equity owners to be engaged, as you say, put in the sweat equity, put in the work to move their portfolio and their portfolio companies towards better ESG performance. So then the acid test is, do the ones that do that, both the investors and the companies, are the, are the leaders rewarded and the laggards punished, or is it perhaps the other way around? You know, I mean, there's been a lot of work done, a lot of data analyzing this, and I think you know, some of the stuff is, is, is still playing out, but I think a couple key things. Number one, the academic literature pretty much uniformly shows that across a variety of ways to slice it, dice it, cut it, think about it, ESG tends to be neutral to positive. 
So there's a meta-study done out of Germany that summarized 2,200 underlying studies on the relationship between ESG and financial performance at a company level, at a security level, and a portfolio level. And 90% of those found a neutral to positive relationship. So we like to say non-negative. Um, and there's a lot of data out there that has an agenda to show this is you know, either magic or poison. And I think for us, it is a useful tool that in the hands of managers can add value. But I think for us- Your rallying cry is non-negative. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but I think for us, you need to get one level deeper. And when people say, they say, oh, you're going to separate the E, the S, the D, it's like, no. It's what's the economic transmission mechanism where this actually helps me manage risk or find opportunity. There are three things that ESG can do. Can it mitigate risk? You know, particularly tail risk or vent risk, number one. Number two, can it find new growth opportunities, new upside, new, new opportunities in the market? Three, can it drive operational efficiency and resilience? If it can't do any of those three things, it's just an abstraction. On the other hand, if it can do those three things, it's a practical tool. And we see it increasingly showing up, right? So real estate managers, any real estate manager worth their salt is already trying to figure out how do I save energy and how do I save water because that just makes me money, right? You know, we talked to a real estate manager recently where one of their key edges in their strategy is they try to find properties that haven't had a property energy retrofit yet because that's one of the sources of value they can unlock. So it's not just we green our buildings, like we're specifically targeting buildings someone else hasn't greened yet. You know, a private equity uh, firm we were talking to um, said, look, at this point, most of the companies you buy, someone has done the water and energy savings thing because, you know, large buyout shops actually figured that out a few years ago. I think KKR's Green Returns website talks about something on the order of 2 to $3 billion a year they save. Um, now they're moving to human capital. So we talked to a private equity shop that explained that, you know, according to Gallup, 30% of American workers are engaged at work. That translates to 500 to $600 billion of lost productivity. And so they create a suite of interventions to try to drive worker engagement. And then in their pilot of this, they found they improved margins between 7 and 15%. And they gave an example of a company that it, where they were the fourth private equity owner. That means three other smart private equity firms had gone and used the whole private equity bag of tricks to try to increase returns. And so they got a company that was pretty well run and had 25% margins. They found that using those sorts of innovations, they got margins up to 40%. Had a great investment. It's good for workers because you had much more broad-based worker ownership. So when that investment was successful, a lot more people benefited from it. And that was sort of this virtuous cycle because people were engaged. They were part of that success and they were rewarded for that success. And, you know, the, somebody once, you know, a lot of people actually will quip. They'll say, well, I believe in efficient markets. Therefore, ESG can't work. That's why it can work, right? Markets are relatively efficient. Things that are well understood are priced in and widely practiced. Low-hanging fruit is gone, right? You got to climb a little higher up the tree if you want to find some fruit. So we like to say ESG is not a magic ladder that teleports you to the top of the tree, but it's one way to find sources of value that haven't been picked over yet. Okay, so if this is the case and there is true value to be had there, more and more of your clients, both institutional and, and individual, I imagine, are asking for this. Your business is growing well. Does this mean that the way markets value E, S, and G is tipping such that vast flows of capital are now going to be moving towards these, as you sort of point out, common sense, but often overlooked ways of, of boosting value, yeah. boosting environmental and social value? I mean, is, are we moving from a place where, where the, you know, we do a little bit on the margins, we're happy to be non-negative, but it doesn't really make that big a difference to a place where the way that companies and investors think about value creation is fundamentally different? 
So I, I think there's an interesting trend in that direction, but there are kind of a few bumps in the road along the way. So number one is ideology around labels and a particular residual cognitive bias. So the labels around ESG are very triggering for some people. You know, they think it means someone else telling them what stocks to not own or a bunch of idealists trying to buy overpriced renewable power stocks, right? They have very specific mental models of what that is. And ironically, we found some managers that are really great at integrating ESG that deny that they do it. You know, because they, they associate it with something that is not investment-minded. Some people, their tautology in their head is that ESG is the not investing stuff, right? And so there's still a lot of that residual cognitive bias where people react negatively to the label and have skepticism. So trade-offs, you're saying, is not just the impact investing world's uh, framework, but actually it's the way the most of the investing world looks at this stuff as a trade-off. Yeah, no, I think because once upon a time, I'd say, you know, this field has developed a lot. Right, which is it's gotten much clearer around what it's trying to do. That there's a difference between you know the grown-up version of negative screening, which is these sort of low tracking error, risk managed aligned portfolios that give you know efficient market exposure, you know, kind of cheap beta for the financial wonks amongst us, um, but in a values aligned way. So it's gotten much clearer around how to do that. ESG integration, active managers that are trying to beat benchmarks and peer groups, where this is another tool in how they do that and impact investing, private investments with measurable social environmental impact at the core of the thesis. The world has gotten clear about the differences between each of those, how you do them, and has gotten to sort of, in some cases, better, crisper implementation of those, which means better results. However, that cognitive bias comes from a lot of people saw, heard, or even tried some of the approaches that maybe had a few of those thrown together, right? Active management strategies with, you know, reasonably high fees, um, you know, not always institutional grade uh, risk management, some shareholder engagement and some negative screen slapped on top, right? So that's what's in a lot of people's heads. And they said, I, I, that didn't work 17 years ago when we tried it. And I think what we try to tell people, it's very hard to tell very smart, sophisticated investors you're wrong. It's much easier to tell them that they're just a little out of date, right? And so we spend a lot of time having that conversation, explaining that, yeah, that happened, right? Many investing disciplines go through different maturation processes. ESG and impact investing are not alone in that. The early days of almost any investment discipline have some toe stubbing along the way. And so it's not that we should be held to a lower standard, but we shouldn't be held to a higher standard. So the key is acknowledge things haven't always been perfect. There have been lots of hype and lots of claims and that happens, right? We don't like it either. However, it may be worth taking a fresh look and seeing where things are today. So I think that cognitive bias is, is sort of issue number one, of getting to this sort of nirvana you talk about. Issue number two, people get over cognitive bias or don't. There is a fork in the road right now. Um, it's becoming increasingly less possible for institutions to ignore it and say, I don't do this at all, go away, right? I think the interest, the engagement from a variety of scopes, I mean, the European Commission just came out with a set of guidelines around this yesterday. I mean, there are a lot of things pushing this. However, now the choice is, um, do you engage with the messiness of this as a real investing question, which takes a lot of work, a lot of resources, a lot of care? Um, or do you engage what I call in checklist washing? I get asked a lot about greenwashing. I say I'm less worried about that than I am about checklist washing. Checklist washing is people with the best of intentions that are trying to do what they think is the right thing, taking what is often an expedient but not maybe deeply well thought out approach to doing it, right? It's saying, you know, my, my ESG due diligence is I saw that they are a UNPRI signatory. I'm done, right? You know, if, if, or I got, I sent out a questionnaire and they sent it back. If an investment manager said, my due diligence process is I sent a questionnaire and they sent it back, that would not be acceptable. 
if this is an investing discipline, why is that any more acceptable for ESG diligence? We're doing the same thing on diversity now, which is, you know, typically a lot of people just count, count types of people. Is that what due diligence looks like? Is that what really assessing capabilities and culture looks like? No, it's the same kind of roll up your sleeves, investigative reporting. And so issue two, as we go down that, that pathway you talked about is checklist washing versus the messy, complicated, harder process of actually rolling up your sleeves and doing this properly. Three, once you've gotten past that, if you've gotten past the cognitive bias, you've rejected checklist washing and doing the hard work, we are starting to see glimmers of these next wave value propositions where it is, I can't just buy a good ESG company because they're generally known to be a good ESG company and valuations are fairly robust. I got to find the fixer uppers, right? So there's a manager we're invested in. They find the mediocre companies that we, are... We, we've been calling that Impact Delta. Yeah, there you go. On Impact Delta. Um, they, that are, how much Greek can we add to this conversation? So it's all Greek to me. So we, um, so, so, so I think we are starting to see that. I talked about you know our own real estate team that's starting to say actually lots of people are greening buildings. So we actually need to be a little more careful to find the things that haven't been greened yet, right? And so I think we are going to start to get to that. And I think another corollary question that you haven't asked, but I get asked a lot, is if ESG is just another toolkit and how to make money and manage risk in a changing world. Won't the label go away and we'll just call it investing? And, and, and I, I say no, because think about any investing, into growth investing, value investing. You know, In their early years, they were new, they were novel, there were a set of devotees that worked hard and kind of figured out what utility there was in that discipline. They started writing about it, started getting more widely known, and people started incorporating the pieces of those disciplines that they found useful. Um, you still have specialists that say, well, I'm going to be particularly good at that. That's going to be my edge. And so what I expect we'll see with ESG over time is the standard of expectation will continue to rise. The kind of baseline kind of table stakes um, of capabilities are going to continue to rise. Once again, this is where video would be better because you could see my elegant hand gestures. Um, but you're still going to have people that say, actually, I don't want to meet table stakes. This is where I'm going to add value. This is where I'm going to find edge. And so I think that's what we're going to pro progress to. And maybe it's people have keener insight into who's truly good and who just labels well. Maybe it's going to be finding and working with those fixer-uppers. And maybe it's going to be strategies we haven't even thought of yet. Well, and, and different sectors and different uh, instruments and different approaches are at different levels of market development. So Absolutely. you could move down and, and move things along, including with catalytic capital or concessionary capital that, you know, all the kinds of deals, wonky deals that we sometimes write about on Impact Alpha move up the scale towards commercialization and and towards market acceptance. Um, which brings us to the, I think what could be the final point, which is about sweat equity, which yeah. I think is, is sort of what you're getting at there, which is that it's not some magic bullet, it's not some formula, it's actually real people doing real work on both sides or all sides of the table. Um, and that that kind of identity of uh, what we would call agents of impact, people trying to make stuff happen, <laughs> partly for their own careers, partly for the, the benefit of the world, um, is what moves moves this along. Just tell me about the I don't know culture inside Goldman. Are people yeah. hyped about this stuff, or are you uh, you know cast off into the broom closet, or how does that work? Yeah, I mean this is this is honestly what's been exciting is you know we spent a lot of time trying to do our own due diligence on this before the acquisition. Um, you know uh, because that, that you know we were perfectly happy on our own. This was you know an unsolicited offer, and we really need to get comfortable that this was going to be a great platform to make the work bigger and better than it could have been on our own versus another business card to have. And I think 
that's one of the things that's been exciting to see is, you know, there was a process, right? At first, you know, we had a meeting very early on after the acquisition and, you know, very pleasant meeting. And towards the end, the room got quiet and they turned to us and they said, which benchmarks do you use? And we said, the same ones you do, right? And you have, you know, these parts of the process or an issue would come up. And when we talk about it, we'd have an investment-minded, thoughtful, analytically grounded approach. Or when we're making private impact investments. We had a great conversation there. You know, during and after the acquisition, they looked at our track record. And our impact private equity performed in line with what private equity should do, sort of generating you know, market rates of return. And, and, and there was a great conversation that ensued. They said, it works in practice, but does it work in theory? <laughs> Which is a, actually a really important point, right? Data can be noise. It can be a coincidence. It could be a sampling issue. There can be all sorts of issues with data. You know, and at the end of the day, what we like to say is you know, a, a, a theory without data is an aspiration, and data without a theory could be noise. Right? And so you need both. And so eventually the conclusion, and this gets back to the point about sweat, the conclusion they came to, and you know, our, we have the co-heads of private equity at Goldman on our investment committee, right? So we have some people with some experience in around these issues, which is really helpful. Um, they said, wait, so you take a deeply research-driven approach. You have a, you know, going and digging deep and doing primary research into these core sectors. Um, you have a disproportionate number of talented investment professionals per dollar you need to deploy doing this. So labor-intensive, research-intensive work. You try to find these interesting niches that have gotten de-risked but aren't fully understood yet. So they have attractive characteristics, but the market either hasn't quite realized that or hasn't figured out how to access it yet. Um, and you can invest with flexibility. You can invest in newer managers and smaller funds. You can help structure funds. You have some of that flexibility. So more work, <clears throat> finding interesting niches with a little more flexibility. They said, okay, I see why that can make money, right? But that gets back to the sweat equity. Like, it takes a lot of work. You know, we do have a disproportionately large number of people digging in, doing that work. And I think that's often one of the questions we get asked all the time is in impact investing, can you generate market rates of return? And, you know, we say there's good news and there's bad news, right? In our experience, if you do the work well, um, you can on an investment basis. Bad news. Number one, it takes a disproportionate amount of work to do that. The research, the digging, you know, that, that sweat. Number two, you may not find... Uh, what you want in every subsector or geography at every point in time. We don't have a good impact distressed manager, for example. And so you may lack certain exposures that in certain market cycles you might be sad about, right? So if there's a period when distressed outperforms everything dramatically, there's not a good dis impact distressed manager, you're not going to have exposure. Three, you can't always write checks of the size you want exactly when you want to write them exactly how. So, you know, talking to a European institution that said, I want to commit $2 billion to impact, you know, in the next year, um, and I can't write a check that's smaller than $250 million. Um, and I can't be more than 25% of the fund, which basically means I have to invest in billion-dollar funds. And the answer is, if you want to find the highest quality opportunities, that's not what they all look like. Uh, and so, you know, you got to be a little flexible in terms of, you know, you, know, you got to dig in and do the work. You got to recognize there's some areas that the market may not have matured in yet. Uh, and you got to be thoughtful on how you can actually reach those goals. And I think, you know, that sweat piece, every element of this, to do any of this well, from coming up with a game plan, right? Change in an organization is hard. So you talked about you know, getting organizations to do this. How do they get moving? Change is hard, right? So of all the priorities within an asset owner's day-to-day, -day, lots of things going on, prioritizing doing something differently is hard, number one. Number two, staffing. You've got what we call the day job problem. If you have a new discipline that may take a lot of work and effort and a very busy staff, whose job is it? Where does it fit? How does, I mean, that's why Goldman Sachs acquired us, right? They sort of recognized that day job problem, that hiring a person or two or tapping existing people on the shoulder wasn't going to get there. 
But that change process of putting in the sweat and figuring out like, how are we going to staff this? How are those people going to relate? One of the most interesting questions when, <clears throat> when I talk to CIOs around the world about ESG and impact investing, one of their biggest questions is, how do I structure my staff? Do I have a separate team? Do I integrate? You know, how do I do that? That, that real reality of how implementation looks like. Um, and then once you've done that, the fact it's going to take more work and you may need to write smaller individual checks to get your aggregate exposure. That sweat piece is, I think, something that, it, you know, there needs to be sort of an honest and sober assessment of that. Because, you know, when we talk about trade-offs, in our experience, you know, that sometimes reinforces this mental model about this abstract theology of it's magic or it's poison. The reality is it's much more nuanced, it's much more subtle, and it's much more grounded in implementation as you roll asset class by asset class. And the trade-offs really tend to be about sweat as opposed to money. Well, you've always schooled me in the notion that concessionary returns can be delivered also by having subpar or, uh, or just poor managers. That, <laughs> you, that there's other, lots of ways to, to lose money in, in markets. Um, uh, there's also lots of ways to make money in markets and that in every case, it's generally a smart thesis with a lot of work yeah. and, and good implementation. So I think uh, you, you started off talking about the, the split between the practical and the, and the, and the philosophical, but you've given us a, a sort of a philosophy of the practical. So thank you, John Goldstein. Um, it's always a pleasure to talk with you and um, we'll, we'll, we'll get together soon. Hey, thanks for having me, David. That's going to do for this second episode in Return on Investment special series, Beyond Tradeoffs. Find out more at impactalpha.com and on Twitter at impactalpha. We'll continue the conversation on Impact Alpha's subscribers-only Slack channel. Join the Beyond Tradeoffs channel to discuss this and other episodes in the series. This podcast has been a production of Impact Alpha in collaboration with Domidiar Network. Special thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh, head of Impact for the fintech company LiquidNet. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you, in some sense of the word, next time. <laughs>